Welcome to Too Deep, Hokies Under the Influence. My name is Pete Berthod, and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. Robbie, how you doing tonight? I'm doing well. It's been a little bit of a break. It felt like months, but it's, I think, only been a couple weeks that we recorded last. I think, yeah, we only had, what, a week, maybe two without football, and I got to watch Army-Navy last week, and, uh, you know, that at least filled the fix a little bit, but uh, I already miss it, and I'm looking forward to the bowl game, and... As we all know out there, we got selected for maybe the worst bowl game possible. <laughs> Things did not go well. It it took a lot of reading to figure out how we ended up in the Independence Bowl because we didn't have another alternative. If you read yeah. into the fine print, we had to end up there. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. Uh, but first, why don't we start it off with a toast? And I'm not sure what you're going to toast to tonight, but you're going to have to come up with something. <laughs> that makes That makes two of us. So... We'll go with, how about a happy holidays? Uh, we're going to do a lot of these episodes. We already have done quite a few this year, so these are going to jump around a little bit. So I feel like it's the appropriate time from uh, now until when you'll next hear from us to do uh, a happy holidays and whatever hol- holiday you uh, either religious or spiritual or just um, you know drinking during uh, this festive season where you get some days off work. Uh, let's go. Cheers to everybody. I hope you have a happy and safe holiday season. Cheers to that. Oh, mama. Yeah, it was a couple <laughs> of weeks. It was. So we're going to talk about how we got selected for that bowl, but there's a lot of news uh, surrounding the Hokies that's been going on the last couple of weeks. And most important, or at least the most fun to follow to me, has been the coaching staff getting rounded out. And uh, I wasn't sure of your thoughts, but I liked I liked some of the things I saw retaining burden. Uh, Zon Burden, our former wide receiver coach, is going to move over to running backs. I thought that was a great move. And we also announced officially uh, Vance Vice will coach O-line, and he's a holdover from Puente's staff at Memphis. I like the pick. Obviously, on Burden, you get the ties back into the 757, which are going to be a focus for the team. He can also help get some of the offensive, well, new offensive coaches, which is going to be well, all of them uh, that we're, we're looking at here, a little bit more up to speed on that that area code, the recruiting grounds, what the high schools look like, probably introduce him, the, you know, the team to a lot of the coaches in that area. So keeping him around, I think, was good. And what I saw from Vice, you know, the O-line coach from Memphis that came over, it seems very positive. Yeah, I, I'm pretty happy with retaining burden, especially for those recruiting connections. And so th- there will be added to... Foster at defensive coordinator, Wiles at D-line, Gray at DB, uh, coach, as we know, and then Shabest and Wiggins, which were also brought in from Memphis. Uh, One thing that I kind of noticed is that it seems that Shane Beamer is going to be gone. We've heard pretty much nothing about him other than his candidacy at ECU, which he was one of the finalists, supposedly. And that job ultimately went to Scotty Montgomery of Duke, but it was interesting to hear Shane's name being brought up for kind of a high-profile job for a guy with no experience. Yeah, and I think there's been some rumors about him in the running for maybe a couple other kind of, uh, you know, group of five jobs that might be out there. I hope I hope he gets it. I'd love to see him in a place. It, it seems like, and I don't know your perception, that there's 0% chance that he's going to be with the Hokies in any sort of coaching uh, role. So I hope he can move on to other things and, you know, be successful somewhere else. Yeah, the, the thing that kind of really clued us in is that you know burden's going to be the running backs coach and that was shane's former position so it just seems like he's going to be elsewhere but i'm sure he'll land on his feet he's got a lot of good connections from his years in the sec and so forth so he'll be just fine i also wanted to uh talk briefly about our offensive coordinator which everyone it's widely believed it's going to be brad cornelson from memphis but he is sticking at memphis through their bowl game and that's a classy move on his part, but I I think everything we've heard is that he will be on staff at Tech. And the last coaching news I had was that uh, Mike Gentry retired uh, from the Hokies. He's our, been our strength and conditioning coach for every year that Beamer's been here, and he will be missed. He he made he was just as big a part as Frank and Bud in some ways, um, turning 
boys into men for many, many years. So <laughs> not to get too erotic with it, I guess. I don't know. That was kind of weird sounding. But uh, but no, Mike Gentry will be missed, um, and we won't be able to say our players getting gentrified anymore. A lot of a lot of kind words came out from players about what he meant to them, and just in terms of you know getting them their bodies prepared for for the sport, but also just kind of mentally and keeping them in the game. So by by my count, it looks like that's still an open position, and the other open position that may may be open that uh, used to have partial responsibility from Bud Foster, but maybe a higher is something around linebackers. Is so we're kind of almost solidified in the whole the whole kind of staff at this point. I know just missing a few guys, and we were both just talking about how we're not sure if there will be a new linebacker coach brought in to replace Cornell Brown because Brown was the outside linebacker coach and Bud kind of coached the linebacker position in general, but that slot's open. Will we bring in a linebacker coach? That kind of remains to be seen and we will need a new strength and conditioning coach, but I'm sure, sure we'll find someone good for that. Do you have any thoughts on just the hirings around the ACC? Because there was a lot of new coaches coming in, especially in the coastal and uh, a lot of big names and some interesting characters as well. Well, we'll stick close to home for the first one, which is you know our our arch nemesis and enemy and UVA and what they did. They picked up uh, Bronco Mendenhall uh, at, from BYU, who's who's actually had a really strong track record. Won a lot of you know big games that were were upsets uh, at BYU. Big surprise. This was a. A hiring that came out of nowhere. Yeah, I did not see this one coming. Well, I don't think anybody did. Even there wasn't really any insider knowledge. There weren't leaks. It, it was really the day of the announcement that this popped out. So, you know, hat tip to them. They went out and they got a. Uh, we'll see what happens with him and how he meshes with that culture. It's obviously coming from a very different place from where he's coming from and into. But I thought that was a uh, surprising hire, and they managed to secure. ECU's former coach, who people were outraged, Pete not so much because he didn't think it was all that all that relevant. But Ruffin McNeil got let go, and now he's going to be the assistant head coach and inside linebackers coach for UVA. So that's that's a pretty good staff that you have. We'll see what they end up doing with it there. No, I agree. That's that's definitely two good names uh, at, at the very least coming to UVA and from all accounts, uh, good men as well. So, you know, maybe UVA will finally get on track after all these years and we can kind of renew this rivalry. I thought that was kind of interesting that in last year's bowl, uh, bowl game, Fuente went up against Mendenhall mm-hmm. and Fuente was coaching Memphis and Mendenhall was obviously coaching BYU. And there was a brawl right at the end of the game and watching the video. And after the fact, um, I think Mendenhall even said like Memphis is full of a bunch of thugs and this and that. So there's a little bad blood between those two coaches, I I think. Um, So that's kind of interesting too. Maybe that will kind of ignite a little bit of a rivalry between the two schools because both of these schools, there's plenty of good players in the area and surrounding states to both be good at the same time. And they used to be that way in the late 2000s or late 90s and early 2000s. And so it would be nice if we just didn't, you know, beat UVA every year and like, well, actually, no, I want to beat them every year, but I want I want there to be some kind of rivalry because there really isn't at this point. Or at least make it them, you know, a top 30 team or something. Not top 25. I don't want them there, but make it at least a, a game that could be, you know, tough and give us a little bit of respect for the, the win. There were some other hirings. By all accounts, the ACC hirings, um, for most people that are, are in the know and probably much more so than us, were, were very strong. You had Dino Babers coming in um, for Syracuse. I thought that was a terrific hire. That's going to be very interesting at that high-powered kind of uh, air raid offense that they're bringing in there. We'll see what the talent can do. And then obviously you have Mark Rick coming in to Miami, which is another solid hire. So you look at the ACC coaching staff and you have, and walking through this, you got Fisher, Sweeney, Babbers, Fuente, Rick, Mendenhall, Fedora, Johnson, Narduzzi, Petrino, and Cutcliffe. That is a pretty rock solid group of coaches in the ACC at this point. Those are all names and some guys have, you know, done better recently than others, but if you look at the hirings made in the SEC 
and compare them to the hirings in terms of fit and name in the ACC. I mean, we kind of. I mean, the ACC did way better than the SEC. If you look at uh, South Carolina settling for Muschamp and Kirby Smart, a guy who's uh, never head coached a game in his life, is now the head coach at one of the top five jobs in college football. Like it, it just seems like Georgia and South Carolina could have both done better with their hires. And some of the other guys in the SEC haven't lived up to the hype that they thought upon initially hiring them. We'll see with Butch Jones still and Mark Stoops at Kentucky, because those guys still are, you know, in years, I think three and four at their positions. But I think the ACC knocked it out of the park. I think the coastal is stacked with great coaches now and it will be very competitive going forward. Rick going to Miami, I think, could is a perfect fit, and maybe it will bring them back a little bit. Which raising the profile of the ACC in general will be good for Tech. So uh, absolutely, if we want to improve and we think we're going to improve, we also want to be going up against better talent, especially the way that the system's set up right now with uh, you know the playoff. It, your strength of schedule is going to be huge. And I don't see us getting uh, rid of any of those softies on our schedule anytime soon. If you look at the changes that just happened uh, in the Big 12 where they required you know one game uh, to be played amongst a Power 5 school, that still doesn't take place and it's still not required until after the current schedule runs its course. So even if the ACC were to do something along the lines of what the Big Ten did and required um, higher level you know, skill play, it would still take a while to shake through. So for better or for worse, I think Old Dominion's staying on our schedule, uh, barring uh, anything uh, well, different. Well, I will say ODU has moved up to D1, but I know what you're saying. The nice thing about the ACC is they've always... There's many rivalries with the SEC, so most of the teams already build in a Power 5 opponent into their schedule, and we always do, too, for and, the most part. And we've started—we have a huge—I know Ohio State was this year, but we are really starting to line things up. We have a Michigan game coming up. We have a Penn State game. I think the Wisconsin is now pushed to 2025, yeah. but we've uh, we started matching up this kind of home-and-home uh, home with the Big Ten that I really like. I love those games. Yeah, going forward, there's a lot of good games on the schedule, and hopefully with this new coaching staff, we can win some of those games. I wanted to talk a little bit about the recruiting push that's been going on since Fuente got to campus, and there's been a ton of new offers, and offers aren't something I'm, I really want to talk too much about because uh, it's too hypothetical and there's a ton of them out there, but there have been some commitments and some recommitments over the past two weeks, and... None was bigger than Gerard Evans, the four-star Juco Q- QB who committed to the Hokies uh, last weekend. And he's the number one Juco QB. And depending on what service you look at, definitely a top 10 Juco recruit. Some I've seen anywhere as top four overall. Uh, he's 6'4", 225. He's got two years of eligibility left. And a lot of schools wanted in on him. And uh, Fuente had been talking to him since he was at Memphis and once he came here, you know, he said he called him and was like, you know, you're still our guy. And uh, once Evans visited, he loved it. I thought it was interesting. I saw something today that said, you know, Fuente's been courting him for a while, right? And he was trying to get after him for, for a long time, even at Memphis. And then it seemed to be that Gerard Evans started to get a little too high profile for Memphis. So it kind of, you know, went away for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, you know, Fuente said this this opportunity popped up being Virginia Tech. And all of a sudden, he picks up the phone and he goes, hey, you may have been too high, you know, your, your recruiting may have been too high profile for Memphis, but it's not for Virginia Tech. And then all of a sudden, you know, as quickly as could be, because today I think was uh, the first day that JUCOs could be signed, and he signed dotted line, you know, today. He, he really wanted it. Yeah, I think once he visited, he was like, this is the big-time program I feel I deserve, and I got the coach that I want here, and it was a perfect fit for him at that point. And he'll join Motley, Lawson, and Josh Jackson, the incoming freshman, uh, in the QB room, and that's going to be a competitive room. And they will all supposedly be there for spring. I think Jackson's already enrolled, and since uh, Evans signed today, he'll also be there for spring practice. So all four of those guys will have a full spring, and it's going to be competitive. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be stacked. I can't wait until spring games and just seeing what's going to be happening out there. I don't know. 
I, you know, I, it's really impressive the depth that we have and, uh, you know, going, I think we have, we'll have a true freshman, sophomore, junior, and I think a redshirt senior all on at the same time, if I have it right. Yeah, I think that's about right. I'm not sure if Motley redshirted, but he will be a senior. And I've noticed something about the ages. Uh, Lawson's going to be 21 when next season starts. Motley will be 22 when next season starts. Evans, I was couldn't find a birth date, but he graduated high school in 2012, which is a long time ago, which means he could be 22 when next season starts. And then you'll have the freshman 18-year-old Josh Jackson. But... You have three guys, 21 and older, competing for this starting QB job. They're mature physically. They should be mature skill-wise as well. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they look in the spring and who will emerge from that room because I think between Evans, Lawson, and Motley, they all have decent shots to be the starter. I couldn't agree more. I And it was very clear you know, when Gerard Evans came in, he said, I was told that I have a chance to compete and, you know, everybody's going in eyes wide open to this whole situation that everybody's got a shot at it and Fuente's going to pick his guy. So another recruiting note was that Philip Patterson, our one-time wide receiver commit, and he decommitted after Frank announced his retirement and now he's recommitted after talking to Fuente. And that's very good news. Phil Patterson's uh, a three-star on most of the services but they really like the way he looks, and I, I, we need wide receivers, and you know, I'm happy to have Patterson back in the fold. I think it's a quality pickup. And then we got a big commit this week, and I mean big stature-wise. T.J. Jackson, guy from Cumberland uh, High School, I believe, uh, at near Richmond. Uh, he's 6'8", and then I was corrected on Twitter that he says he's 6'9", <laughs> um, and about 325 pounds. Uh, he is a massive, massive man. He would basically be the biggest guy on our roster, uh, save for Tim Settle's weight, depending on how much it's come down. Um, but he and Parker Osterlau would basically be the two biggest offensive linemen, and he hasn't even you know gotten to school yet. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to be six nine three twenty five at eighteen years old, but <laughs> that's impressive. Hopefully, uh, his uh, footwork can keep up with his size because uh, that's massive. Yeah, he wasn't on any of the ranking services, at least according to Andy Bitter, when he committed. But I just checked today, and he was a three star on Rivals. So sometimes that happens after you commit to a big time school. I'm not exactly sure, but he's a three star O lineman and. You know that's been a weakness for the Hokies over the years, so it's good to see a big man like that coming to the team. I'm not sure if you had any other kind of recruiting notes. I uh, had I had two real quick. That it seems like uh, Divine Diablo, who has the best name ever, it seems like we're in good graces with him. That was a little bit of a question mark. You know, yeah, Philip Patterson to solidify his commitment, right? Philip Patterson just you know de- he he kind of decommitted and then recommitted. Divine uh, Diablo kind of was a little bit shaky for a period there. It seems like we're in good shape there, which is reassuring because he's a he's a really good wide receiver. And then um, I thought the the four star stud wide receiver, the FSU commit DJ Matthews, you know, tweeting out that he could see himself at uh, Virginia Tech. I don't put much into that. What I do put into it is I think there's a renewed energy in the recruiting program right now. And we're seeing this on a number of different levels where people are at least demonstrating interest. There was another one today that I didn't look too much into that somebody said they were holding off until they could get an official visit um, just after the uh, the quiet period that we're about to enter into. I just think there's a renewed energy that we're seeing. And I can't believe how many offers Fuente has. Does the guy sleep? Because, I mean, you know, I know he only had to, you know, his sole focus was on recruiting, but he's been a monster out there. I know. There's been, like I said, at the top of this segment, there's been so many offers. And that DJ Matthews thing was, was interesting. This guy is like a total stud, top 40 on every service, wide receiver. Same high school as Isaiah Ford, which hopefully Ford's been in his ear. He has yet to decommit from the Knowles. He is a solid verbal commitment to FSU as of right now, and I checked today, and he's still committed. So whether he meant anything by that, see see myself at Virginia Tech, hey, our name's out there. Maybe there was some contact made and whatever else. I had two last notes before we uh, take a break and talk about the bowl. Kendall announced he is leaving for the NFL draft yesterday. I saw that Kuyper had him at, as the 18th best prospect and McShay had him at the 32nd best prospect. And this is something we expected. 
it's a bummer that he'll be leaving, but he we knew this was going to happen. Absolutely. I mean, he sent out a nice note today. Uh, it got picked up by Twitter, which was just thanking Hokie Nation for you know letting four guys that you know came from uh, from Baltimore kind of come in and and build themselves into their kind of dream, which was to to do well in college and then become NFL talents and. Now it's four for four. I mean, that's an amazing, amazing thing. And, you know, he deserves it. I'm glad that he's actually going. And I know that's a weird thing to say because we don't want to let him, you know, you know, just go on to the NFL and the talent that he was. But good for him. He deserves it. He worked really hard. And I think he's a really stand up guy along with the whole Fuller family. So we we thank we thank the Fuller family for uh, what they've done for Virginia Tech. I know, and I'm just hoping that we'll see three Fullers in the NFL next year. By all accounts, we should with Kyle, Kendall, and uh, Corey. And uh, yeah, it's a shame they didn't have more kids. Maybe <laughs> in 20 years, you know, we'll have all of the kids of the Fullers at Tech. But uh, the last thing I wanted to say was Isaiah Ford was named the first team All ACC, and I'm I'm not big on awards, but I think it's it's worthy of note that he's the first Virginia Tech wide receiver to make all ACC team and the first Virginia Tech receiver to make any all-conference team since Andre Davis. So that's pretty sweet. And he's also only 26 yards shy of breaking Davis's single-season receiving record, and that should happen the bowl unless he gets hurt on the first play. There were some other guys that were also made all ACC teams. Matty and Hodges made second team. Daddy made third team which is great and probably based mostly on his name. But yep. he, he was in on tons of plays and just in a lot of situations couldn't bring guys down. But nevertheless, he did make third team, even with a disappointing season. And McMillan and Corey Marshall made honorable mention. And I feel like McMillan could have maybe made a little bit better than honorable mention. But I think if he was in, I think he would have surpassed the uh, pit running back uh, if he was – in full force the, in those first five games as uh, he was towards the you know the rest of the season. He's a talent. I'm excited. Uh, and my only last piece of news was, um, because it's not directly related to the game, was um, Fuente and Bucky Hodges. So Bucky Hodges is evaluating. He's going to be submitting his page, paperwork to the advisory committee um, to see where they think that he falls out. But Fuente was trying to convince him to stick around so that that's another kind of ball in the air for us. We would all love to have him back. I think he could do well by another year uh, in uh, in the college program. I think it'll help him, barring any injury for his draft stock. But that's a one last ball in the air that I think we'll we'll see what falls out. All right. Well, let's take a quick beer break and then jump into the bowl game. Robbie, what are you drinking? Right now, I'm on a Long Trail Brewing Company sick day, as they call it. The tagline is, some days are just too good to miss. I like this. I got a uh, a bunch of hardcore woodsmen and uh, skiers and snowboarders in my family that uh, are... Actually, some of them, this is from Vermont, went to uh, to uh, schools up there. I like it. It's It's good, and I think it's... It's a little bit uh, maltier than I usually like, but I, I think it's actually a really good beer, and it goes down smooth, and I enjoy it very much. I'm drinking the Bell's Christmas Ale. Bell's is a, a brewery a lot of us know about, but I hadn't had their Christmas Ale up until a couple of weeks ago, and I like it. It's kind of a crisp, uh, lighter winter ale, and I assume – I couldn't find the alcohol content on the bottle, but I assume it's somewhere between 5 and 6 and it's a nice break from some of the more hoppy winter beers uh, that are out there. So, yeah, the Bell's Christmas sale, I, I would highly recommend it in these last, you know, nine days before Christmas. So, as we mentioned earlier, the Hokies are going to the Camping World Independence Bowl. Great sponsor. Not such a great bowl, right? And uh, we're playing Tulsa, 6-16 six and six team from the American Conference. They had recently moved over from Conference USA. And I think we'd all say that this is a disappointing send-off for Beamer. And some of the ACC bowl rules is why we ended up here. Because Duke, Louisville, and NC State were all selected for Tier 1 bowls because they finished 7-5 and five and were able to be selected above 
Pitt. Pitt dropped down to a tier two bowl. They had eight wins. We had six. Therefore, we couldn't be picked ahead of them. Pitt got the military bowl and we got the independence bowl. Did I sum that up right? I think you got that perfectly right, actually. I don't, you know, it was, I think it's very, um, I don't know. It's, it's very, it's cool for Beamer to go back to where he, it all started. It was the first bowl game that Virginia Tech uh, had been in under his, um, you know, program tutelage or uh, higher, whatever the hell you want to call it. But I think that the, the real point here is that it just, it just sucks because the location is so abysmal to try and get to. You literally would have to fly into, I think, Dallas is probably the yeah, most economical, and then drive three hours from Dallas to get there. So I think most people are very disappointed about just the inability to get there to support them. You know, not all people are making tons of money, and they can't just afford to spend a lot of money on travel to a bowl game. And it's the day after Christmas, so you basically have to make this almost like a Christmas present to your family that you're all going to be going (laughs) somewhere. And some people were thinking Charlotte and some people were thinking other locations that were more nearby and could actually sell that. So you basically will end up having no families there. There'll be no kids there. Everybody's going to, nobody's going to travel unless they're nearby or within a drives uh, trip of it to get to that game. So I thought it was a little bit disappointing. I'm hoping that our, Southern Hokie fans from Oklahoma or Texas or Louisiana or Arkansas will make the trip because it's very difficult for the Northern Virginia and DC Hokies to make that trip right after Christmas. The only seven saving grace is what you mentioned is that, okay, it was Frank's first bowl at tech. So that's kind of cool. And back then there weren't a lot of bowls and this one's still around. So it's kind of a historic bowl game, but it sucks. It would have been so much nicer to go to the military bowl uh, and that would have been on the table had Pitt just been taken for one of the three tier one bowls that were available. Well, and it's going to lead to the point that I had, which there was a lot of commentary that if Virginia Tech played better this year and had won more games, then we would have been able to have a better bowl destination, which is fair. But the bowl games have become all about money anyway. So. There's 40 bowl games. You need 80 teams to fill them. It's about sponsorship and for the top, you know, kind of upper echelon of games, it's about making money back to the school. It's about money anyway. It's less about competition and it's less about recruiting. It's in some respects, it's less about the actual players. Uh, It's, you know, the coaches get more time to practice. So that's why they want to be in a bowl game because otherwise you're eliminated for doing the practice between the end of the season and bowls. My point is, is that, yeah, I think we should have been in a better bowl. The rules strictly prohibited that from actually happening. If you look into it, just like you said, we couldn't have gone to the military bowl the way things played out, we couldn't have gone into the Belk Bowl. I understand, but I think the rules need to be amended because it's already about money anyway. And I understand they're trying to protect you know, winning teams that aren't as popular, but I also don't really give a shit because, quite frankly, if your fan base isn't going to show up, then why should I feel bad that you guys aren't getting a good bowl? That doesn't really make any sense because Pitt's not going to show up in all of the tier one bowls passed on Pitt. Why should they knock us out of a bowl that could have been not the bowl, the Belk bowl, but we could have been in the military bowl. That would have been awesome against a good Navy team. We have a huge cadet presence, a huge kind of military presence within our program. And it would have been drivable and in Annapolis for, for a coach and we got boxed out because of this one, you know, one within one game rule, you know. Yeah. And it would have been nice to, or at least interesting to see what would have happened if we had that one, if we had that seventh win, would it have played out this way? Uh, would we have been in the Belk Bowl or because we could have been selected ahead of Pitt, would we have ended up in the Military Bowl? That's not what happened. And we did just go to the military bowl last year, so maybe they would have passed us on us anyway, and we'd still be in Shreveport. It you know, it's impossible to say. 
But here, that's where we are. And we're going to play Tulsa. And Tulsa has a hell of an offense. And it's because of their coach, Philip Montgomery. He's a, is in his first year, he was the offensive coordinator at Baylor from 2012 to 2014 and was actually at Baylor for a number of years before that. Tulsa finished 6-6 six and six, uh, overall and 3-5 and five in the American Conference. And that was a huge improvement over their last two years under Bill Blankenship where they went 5-19. and 19. They won six games this year and five over the last two years. So they definitely showed improvement, but mainly only on the offensive side of the football. Uh, they've been a pretty decent program. They've gone to nine bowls. This will be their ninth bowl since 2003. And they were actually so good on offense this year that Texas just hired away their offensive coordinator, Sterling Gilbert, as well as their offensive line coach, Matt Maddox. And if you read anything about that Texas situation, they put the full court press on those two guys. They flew out, you know, to secure the hires of those guys, the school president, Greg uh, Feverns or whatever the hell you want to pronounce his last name, but and their AD Mike Perrin, they both flew out to secure him on like almost a late night <laughs> escapade to like kind of lock down this situation, which a few people caught some photos of and things like that. Some rumors got out, and they put a absolute full court press, both from an interest standpoint and from a paying standpoint. It looks like Greg's going to make 850 K a year. And then 500 K goes to, um, uh, sorry, not Greg. Uh, I apologize. Gilbert. Uh, Gilbert's going to make, uh, 850 K and then his, um, you know, offensive line coach, Matt is going to make 500 K, which is a pretty penny. Texas can, can throw around money. So they definitely wanted them and good for them, but it might also be good for us. It very well may be. I still think that offense is going to be dangerous with the players they have and the fact that Montgomery himself can coach and, and choose the plays on offense for this game. Uh, he knows exactly what he wants to do on offense. And if you look at their numbers, they're pretty astounding. I mean, they were 14th in total offense on the year, over 500 yards per game, which I would kill for an offense that was getting 500 yards per game. Uh, they were 11th in passing offense. And they were only held under 20 points once all season, and that was against ECU. They give up uh, kind of a large amount of sacks. They're 112th in sacks per game, but they're only uh, 55th uh, in FBS in tackles for loss per game. So they actually, you know, while they give up a few sacks here and there, they make a lot of big plays. They average six yards per play, which is good for 40th, but they've run so many plays. It's a fast offense. They were the third fastest offense in FBS. Only Baylor, or yeah, only Baylor and Texas Tech ran more plays than them. They were eighty-three plus uh, plays per game, and so they will wear you out. I'm a little nervous about playing this offense. I would agree. Their losses, you know, take a step back. Were against these are the teams, and you may recognize some of the names: Oklahoma, Houston, ECU, Memphis, Cincinnati. And Navy. Those are good teams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about, you know, all but one of those are group of five teams, but they are all very well-known group of five teams. I think Memphis, we all know. Probably about. the best group of five teams. Yeah. Cincinnati had a big upset this year. Navy is had an astounding year. Houston is now going to be playing in a New Year's Eve bowl. And ECU had a little bit of a down year, but still respectable. So th- those are not easy wins. They, they play in a pretty tough, uh, conference. So I, I agree that that offense, I'm scared. It, uh, it's their top 50 in almost every category on the offensive side of the ball that you can come up with. Um, and the, the defense isn't great, but I think their QB is really, I think he's good. I mean, he's a 63% completion ratio on the year. 22 TDs, eight interceptions. The The amount of sacks that he's taken, I think you hit it right on the head, is the amount of plays that they've had. So that doesn't really correlate necessarily to what a sack rate would be in for other teams because of how high, you know, fast-paced their offense is. I thought he had a, you know, a great year. He can't move with his feet. 
that's the one thing I think we should be thinking about as a saving grace <laughs> against our team because if this was a scrambling quarterback, we would be in big trouble. But I think he is a very efficient, effective QB, but at least he can't scramble. I agree. Yeah, Dane Evans, who we're talking about, he, he threw for almost 4,000 yards this year, and the TD numbers weren't there. And that's partially because they like to, I think they like to run the ball when they get in the red zone because their running backs have a ton of touchdowns. He was seventh in the nation in pass yards per game. But there were some similarities to Brewer. And we talked, both of us talked about the sacks, and they're both taking about three sacks per game. But Evans is on the field for so many more plays than Brewer that, you know, he's, he's really not taking as many sacks. And if you look at their QBRs, like, they're actually not that different. Like I know Evans has like these gaudy numbers, but because they run so many plays, they're not actually as good as you might think. Like he's got a 63.6 QBR and Brewers at 61.6. So they're, they're only separated by a few points. And if you're looking at pure efficiency, you know, we've seen Brewer be efficient and we very well might have the better QB in this game. It's just that in this system, this guy puts up so much, so many numbers and so does all the so does everyone else. They have some running backs that we should be concerned with: D'Angelo Brewer, Zach Langer, and their third running back, uh, Romney Warren. Langer is really their their big boy and the like their heavy hitter. He had he missed a couple games with an injury, but he has 17 TDs on the season, which that's like Lee Suggs numbers from back in the day. That is a ton of touchdowns. Like I mentioned, they like to run the ball when they get close, and it works. Uh, he's six foot two twenty. That's that's a solid bruising running back. And uh, Brewer, uh, D'Angelo Brewer, well at five nine one eighty five. You know he ran for seven hundred yards this year and four touchdowns. I mean these these are adequate backs. But one thing I noticed and and you touched on it, is like Evans doesn't run at QB, and these running backs really don't catch passes. Like everyone plays their roles in these in this offense. Like it's not a, a Taquan uh, Mizzle situation where you got running backs coming out of the backfield catching passes it's it's straightforward and and we usually play well against that I agree I think it's a situation that we can handle both running backs had over 700 yards which is impressive and I think the kind of a more you know formalized you know offense that I think Bud Foster is going to be able to get a better read on it as opposed to having to do in-game adjustments, which we've seen with some of the the games where we've seen scrambling quarterbacks. So I I think he can game plan around this a little bit better. Not that it's not going to be difficult. This is a high-powered offense, but I think that I agree with you in that, you know, having a, a running backs that cannot or not haven't shown a demonstration to catch the ball and a QB that doesn't run I think helps us, you know, a lot in this game. Yeah, that plays into our wheelhouse. Uh, the one guy that's really going to scare us is Kiaris Garrett, their top wide receiver. He has 88 catches through 12 games and uh, 1,450 yards receiving and seven touchdowns. He's six four, two twenty one. I can't imagine he'll go undrafted in the next NFL draft. I mean, he's he's a redshirt senior. He had an injury a couple years ago and missed a year, but. He's a beast. I mean, he he goes deep. He uh, catches for possession. He can leap, outleap you. I mean, he is a big, hulking wide receiver that we should absolutely be worried about. He's the second leading receiver in all of college football. I mean, that says a lot right there. Uh, he beat up on Memphis, a team that we may well know at this point. He had 268 yards and three TDs in that game. This is a frightening man. So he can go up, get the ball. He can get in space. He can do a lot of different things. Yeah, he is absolutely going to do very well in the. Uh, he's kind of a, um, you know, Larry Fitzgerald type talent that you don't see very often. That has a little bit of height, but also a lot of agility. And he may well, you know, go up there as a you know a top round talent. I mean, he's going for over a hundred yards per game on average, and I wouldn't doubt that it happens in this game. It'll be interesting to see whether we put uh, face on on him the whole time or we kind of mix it up and bracket him or whatever we might do. Over the years, when we would go up against top receivers, whether it be Julio Jones or um, 
I'm, I'm blanking on the other Alabama wide receiver, but in, when we've gone over up up against the elite wide receiver talents, Bud, uh, Bud and Torian like to change it up and kind of bracket those receivers. And it, when they lack a Kendall-type player, that's what we may well end up doing. There's a couple other guys that can catch the ball. Joshua Atkinson, no slouch himself at 65 receptions, 932 yards and four touchdowns. He's not as big as Garrett, but he's definitely dangerous. And then you got Justin Hobbs, who I think has a little bit more of a a big playability. He's 6'4", 207, and is averaging almost 18 yards a catch with uh, 516 yards receiving. So that's another guy I would worry about. And they got one more, Connor Floyd, who's more of a possession receiver, smaller guy, 6'2", 210. But he has three touchdowns too this year. Tulsa put up major numbers. They scored about 36 points a game. So naturally, all of these guys have huge touchdown numbers. Yeah, it's going to be about the defensive back field for us, I think. Uh, I think we'll be able to shut down the run game. I think we've done a good job, especially with uh, a more formalized run game without a scrambling quarterback. So I think it's going to be either DBU or bust. You know, if we can shut these guys down in the backfield and, you know, keep them contained, I think that's really going to be one of the big keys for us in defending this offense because it is, it's stellar and they have a lot of talent. There's no doubt about it. It was Amari Cooper. That's who I couldn't come up with. <laughs> um, before we talk about this defense, should we drink? Because it's that bad that it makes me want to drink. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> it is. It is. A, it's These numbers will blow your mind. But yeah, let's take a quick, quick beer break. Robbie and I just had a interesting hops conversation, but <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm actually having that snow day now, which is... Definitely has more of a bitter flavor, and you mentioned how it's uh, – or I'm sorry, I said Snow Day. The Sick Day by uh, Long Trail Brewing. And it's definitely bitter, but uh, it's not it's not overly hoppy. It's I think the, the whatever malt flavor it is in there is making it a little uh, bitter, but it's uh, almost 6, 6.8% alcohol, and um, I like it. But what you're drinking, I really, really like. I had one last week. What are you drinking? The Trogues – Blizzard of hops. I hadn't had this yet. I, uh, quite honestly, you probably figured this out by now. I usually stick with IPAs and double IPAs. I don't venture too far outside of that realm. I've had a lot of different beers and just kind of honed in on my, my niche, if you will. But this is a damn good beer. It is 6.4% alcohol. It's a hoppy beer but it's kind of a got a deeper richness to it, I think is how I'd care. It's a winter IPA, which is, it's fantastic. I got to be honest. Um, Pete suggested, he thought I would like this. And absolutely, I think it's it's an excellent beer. Yeah, I uh, my family is from the Harrisburg area. And that's where Trogue's originally from. They just opened a facility in Hershey. And... Uh, my extended family brought that down for me, and I loved it. So I figured Robbie should try it. It's right up his alley. And I was right. So this defense um, that Tulsa puts on the field is, is pretty much an abomination. <laughs> they are 126th of 128 teams in total defense, giving up 531 yards per game. They give up 6.5 yards per play, which is 115th. Passing and rush D are both 119th or worse. The only thing they do well is that they will tackle you in the backfield. But the problem with this Tulsa defense is that they either tackle you in the backfield or they give up a huge play. They don't play in between defense. And that's been their Achilles heel all year is giving up the big play. They have two decent players. Is that what you basically gathered, Robbie? I came up with three, and I literally could not get beyond three. That was that was that was it. So I had Trent Martin at maybe linebacker, and that was just because he's four force fumbles uh, on the year. I thought that was kind of impressive. Um, not necessarily that the rest of his stats were great. He had fourteen tackles for loss, which I thought was pretty sweet. And, uh, yeah, just two sacks, but eight tackles per game. That's good for a linebacker. Right. 
Matt uh, Linscott, I had as another linebacker. He had five sacks on the year, which is uh, impressive from that position. And their cornerback, uh, Kerwin Thomas, uh, I thought he had a good year with 11 pass breakups and a couple INTs. You may have one different from that, but those were the three that I picked out that seemed like, at least from the stat board and what I had read and everything I looked at, those guys look look like they uh, may be impactful in the game. Yeah, Martin and Lynn Scott in the linebacking core, uh, they will they'll rush the passer, they'll drop back into coverage, Um you know, Linscott had 16 tackles for loss, too, and also eight tackles per game. Both Linscott and Martin were at 96 tackles on the year. So they were consistent, and, you know, they were on the field a lot because of how fast that Tulsa offense works. But those are they're, they're, they're good players. I did have Kerwin Thomas noted here with those 11 pass breakups. Uh, but Michael Mudo, uh, their safety, 10.5 tackles per game. Three and a half for a loss and five breakups himself at safety, which is pretty solid. Their defensive line is not very great. I mean, they're giving up 240 yards on the ground nearly per game. Uh, no one on that line is really blowing me away. There's two guys named Derek. You got Alexander and uh, Letjen. I think it's I'm pronouncing it completely wrong, but it's L U E T J E N. And he had eight and a half tackles for a loss and a sack, but. Their D line, the defense in general is really not very good. It's 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 not it's worse than not very good. It's bad. Um, Martin and Linscott are the only you know polish on this turd. I think the biggest um, part of what we're talking about here is the fact that sixty three yards for Isaiah Ford to get to a thousand and thirty eight yards for McMillan to get to a thousand. They should be able to do it in this game which would also benefit us greatly because we called one of the one of the wide receivers getting to 1000 yards this year and, and it was we were leaning Ford heavy that it would be Ford and not Phillips it would only be a question of who was covering you know it was a big gamble but we went out there and we put it on the put it on the podcast that one of them would reach 1000 yards and looks like Isaiah should be able to do it if he can get more than 63 yards in this game this defense is not worth talking about if we have trouble with it then that that would be surprising given what McMillan has showed, what Isaiah has showed. It, you know, it just it doesn't make a lot of sense if we have trouble with this defense. So I think we should be able to perform well and put up points in this game. Yeah, I expect multiple big plays from Trayvon Ford and Bucky each, like more than you know, two twenty-yard runs from Trayvon, a couple forty-yard catches from Ford. And, you know, maybe a touchdown or two from Bucky. I mean, we should easily eclipse the 400-yard mark in this game. We should run for 200 yards. That should be that should be what we focus on. We should run the football first and control the clock, score touchdowns and not field goals. That's right. what we need to do. If you do those things, we'll win this game easily. And our defensive backs, I think, need to perform well because they do have – wide receiver talent and they have a QB they can get it to them. So we yeah. need, we need the youngins that we're now with right now to step up and keep doing what they've done the past couple of games. Yeah. We definitely need our DBs to step up. You got to make sure Garrett just doesn't go crazy. He's going to get yards and catches. That's just the way it's going to work, but get off the field on third down They'll, They will wear us out if we're out there over and over again and they're converting if we can hold them between 24 and 28 points, I think we win the game. Houston, th these are the best teams they played. Houston, ECU, Navy, and Oklahoma. Houston held them to 24, ECU 17, Navy 21. Whenever they went up against a good defense, they had a hard time putting points on the board. They did score 38 on playoff-bound Oklahoma, but that was in September when we know people were scoring on Oklahoma and they were having a hard time. I mean, Texas beat them not too long after that. Uh, but when they played decent defenses, for the most part, they were held 24 points or under. So that's what I'm, I'm putting that as a goal out there for the Virginia Tech team. And if we do that, we should win this game. I think we can score 30, 34 points you know, fairly, fairly easily. And if you need a scouting report, you know, 
talk to Fuente because Memphis played Tulsa this year and he scored 66 points on them. Yeah. There was nine touchdowns by Memphis against Tulsa this year in that game. It was four passing touchdowns by Lynch and five rushing touchdowns. It's just crazy. I'll take Lynch though if we want to bring him over to <laughs> Yeah, I, we don't have Lynch on our team, but uh but the fact that, you know, Memphis scored 66 points on them. I'm hoping that we can throw up 35. Uh let's do these picks. And I want to do the ACC bowl picks. There's some fun games in here, including our own. And we play the day after Christmas, as Robbie had mentioned earlier. We're 13 and a half point favorites, which almost is so much that I'm nervous. But I think it's the highest of all the bowl games. I think we have the biggest spread in 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 all of the bowl games, right? Last I checked, it was like a week ago. So. Which it kind of shocks me. I mean, I know that Tulsa's not like obviously we just trashed their defense, but their offense is very good and we've been so inconsistent. Um I'm shocked at this thirteen and a half point line. I would think like nine and a half, maybe, but thirteen and a half is a lot. I'm taking Tulsa on that line. It's just it seems like a lot of points. Like I could easily see this being 34-24 or uh 40-30 or something like that. I agree. I I think it's a lot of points for us to go up against a high-powered offense as much as I trust Bud Foster. I think I have to agree with you and I think it's going to be I don't know, a nine-point game or something like that, maybe 12-point game. I, I don't see it exceeding 13-and-a-half. I hope it does, but I don't see it exceeding that. I think we're going to win, absolutely, but I think it's going to be a smaller spread than that. Yeah, I agree. So let's go to some of the other bowls that are right after Christmas. The Pinstripe Bowl. Uh, Indiana at, uh, against Duke. I was about to say at Duke, but it's you know in Yankee Stadium. Indiana's a two-point favorite. This is kind of an interesting game. I mean, Indiana, they played teams tough throughout the year, but they really didn't get the results that, you know, they were looking for. And Duke, man, they they were awful down the stretch, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't like either of these teams. <laughs> I really don't. But I'll take Duke. Like, it's two points, you know, more or less a pick them. I'm going to take Duke. I'm also going to take Duke, they, Indiana, they scared a lot of teams this year. There were some close games. They gave, I think it was even during the Ohio State game, I think it was, that they, they played them close. Uh, I, they may come out with a vengeance because all their efforts during the year didn't really amount to much because they end up losing almost all of those games. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm going to go with Cutcliffe. I think he can prepare them for the bowl game. I like cash in the backfield and what he can do and, you know, pass rush. So I'll go with that and who knows. All right. The Sun Bowl is Miami against Washington State. And this has potential for points. Uh, it should be should be a lot of fun to watch, actually, even though <laughs> El Paso. I mean, I know we were ragging on Shreveport, but El Paso is not that much better in terms of destination. For Power 5 schools, the ACC has some of the two worst bowl tie-ins. I mean, Jesus Christ. Isn't it warm in El Paso, though? Cause that is true. Shreveport, it could be cold there. So I don't think it's like you know Miami Beach, but it's it's got to <laughs> be. I mean, almost anything's better than Shreveport. But Washington State is three-point favorites, and I like Washington State. Yeah, I don't think you can go against that. I think that's the I think that's the pick, especially at three. Absolutely. The military bowl on the twenty eighth is Pitt against Navy, as we had talked about earlier. Navy's three and a half point favorites. They have had a great season and Pitt has been a little on and off. Uh three and a half though, you know, it's I think I like Pitt. I like Navy to win, but I like Pitt. To cover the three and a half? Yeah, yeah. I'll I'm going to go Navy. Team. I think they're – well, one, it's looking more and more like their head coach who, if I could pronounce his name, then I'd be from Hawaii. That guy's name is uh, – you want to give it a shot? It's like I'm not going to give it a shot. Not a, not a Datu, <laughs> I think it is. Not, uh, not going to work here anymore. Yeah, not going to work anymore. <laughs> so I think Navy will pull this off. I, they've had a tremendous season – Maybe this is kind of a rooting pick, 
but I hope they pull it off again. And Pitt kept us out of being in that bowl game, so that's all the more reason to pick against them. But I I think that they can make this happen. I think they're a strong, strong group of five team. I have faith in Narduzzi to stop that option. Yeah. On twelve twenty nine, we've got the Russell Athletic Bowl, and uh, ACC runner up UNC is going to go up against Baylor. And again, this is going to be some points. This should be real fun. Baylor's two point favorites against the Tar Heels, and I like UNC. I Baylor's think, on its third quarterback. Third yeah, quarterback. they're basically running the triple option at yeah. this point. Like the guy can't throw. Yeah. Did, did. Were they the ones that put in, I think they're like one of their fullbacks in as wide receiver because he had played in high school? Yeah, they've been... His guy's name was Lynx. Decimated <laughs> by injuries. I'm going to go with UNC. We've seen that offense. It does work. You saw the game against Clemson. Like, they they played well against... Against the, the number one team in the country. Right. So, I'm absolutely going to take that. If I was in Vegas, I would bet on that and... Yeah, Baylor may pull a rabbit out of its hat, but it would that would be a magic trick. To now, Baylor's game. not getting back one of their quarterbacks. Like they might be, but even if they were, like I don't know who's coming back. Like the uh, Seth Russell's not coming back. I just no. didn't know if the uh, Stidham was coming back at some point. I don't know if Stidham is coming back, but regardless, I'm taking UNC, and I think you are too. I just I think they they showed what their worth was against the number one team and. Baylor, you know, I just don't have a lot of faith in them. So I'm Baylor doesn't have the defense that we have a better defense, I believe, than Baylor. And we were managing to stop, but we didn't control Marquise Williams. Uh, he still had a lot of good runs. They stopped themselves at the end of that game. Right. So that, that quarterback and that offense up against Baylor, I think, is going to do well. In the Belk Bowl. The bowl we also might have been in. NC State against Mississippi State. Mississippi State is five-point favorites, and I like them to cover that five points. NC State is not very good. They're just not. I mean, I thought they would be a little bit better, but they just they lack that that extra intangible to be a very good team this year. And maybe they'll get it next year, but... They just are not very good. Mississippi State will cover, and I think they might cover big. I agree. I'm going to go with that. I think Mississippi State's going to have their number, and I agree with you. NC State, there was a divided kind of vocal base about whether they were going to be good this year or whether they were going to be kind of the same mediocre team that they have been. I think we figured that out throughout the season that they are on the verge of being kind of a competitive you know, team in the ACC Atlantic, but they're not there yet. Not yet. The Music City Bowl, Texas A&M against Louisville, and this is a pick em. And I think that's about right, and it's, it's a tough pick. I'm going to take Louisville and... I have kind of liked Louisville a little bit all year, even though they suffered that early loss. But that early loss to Houston doesn't look nearly as bad now. And Texas A&M is another one of these, like, are they or aren't they teams? Like, And they just always seem to make a lot of mistakes, and their defense is still not very good, even though Chavis came over. I like Louisville in the pick What do you like? It's debatable. I think... A&M is kind of a dumpster fire right now. They just lost their you know, quarterback, who's another five. So they had two five-star recruit quarterbacks, and they lost one of them who says now he's, he's transferring. I, I think it's the second time he's actually transferred. And in any case, I just don't have a lot of confidence in that program. I don't have a particular amount of confidence in Louisville, quite frankly. <laughs> But I think that they will, you know, turn it on and win this game. So as much as I hate to keep our picks aligned, I would have, you know, definitely gone with Louisville, not even knowing what just happened. Was it Kyler Murray? I think it was that just decided to leave their program. I think so. And I would have, I would have gone with it even before knowing that. And now that just stirs up the locker room even more. The Peach Bowl is Houston against FSU. Houston playing its way in by beating Navy in the uh, 
or sorry, beating Temple in the championship game of the AAC. FSU is a touchdown favorite, and I think that Houston's going to give them all they can handle. I really do. I think Houston's a good team. Greg Ward Jr., um, as long as he's looking healthy for this game, I think they're going to give FSU some trouble. And I love Dalvin Cook, uh, but he is more or less all they have on offense. It has been all they have. It's... I think this is a fantastic kind of fun matchup. Not so much. It's not two high powered programs. Obviously you got Houston in there, but I think this is going to be a really fun game to watch, to see a powerhouse with the legacy of FSU go up against a team like Houston and, you know, a former Ohio state coach that's now taking them to, I mean, new heights. He didn't. He stuck with the program. I can't. I can't even believe it. But he three and a half. He took a three million dollar payday in Houston, which I don't even know how Houston can afford to pay that. And I think this is going to be a fantastic game. You have a very, very solid offense with Houston, and then you have basically Dalvin Cook. I think that's the only thing that they have going for him. And. I think that Houston's going to pull this off. Absolutely. You think they're going to win straight up? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. I, I absolutely do. And I think what they showed in getting into the New Year's Eve Bowls and what they showed, they beat some really, really tough teams this year. If you look at the the Power Five and the AAC that they were in, it's a tough conference. They actually went up against, and we read off a lot of the names earlier because yeah. we went through that. So I think they are actually going to pull this off. I think it'll be a stunning upset uh, for FSU, and they're going to be real pissed. The coaching names that have come through Houston are kind of crazy. Like Art Riles was there, then Kevin Sumlin, and now you got Tom Herman there. I mean, that program just is like it's a coach's breeding ground. It's crazy. In the Orange Bowl, the playoff game, Oklahoma against Clemson, and in – a little surprising to me, Oklahoma is a four-point favorite. At least that's what I saw earlier today. And I like Oklahoma. They're a good team. But I really think Clemson is at least good to cover the four, if not just win the game. I think it's going to be a really, really fun game. I think Clemson's defense has gotten better and better. And Dabo has got that to the point where they're just reloading because they have put so many guys in the draft and high draft picks. And then that Clemson defense under Venables just comes back year after year. And they're awesome. Oklahoma's defense got significantly better as we kind of touched on earlier as the year went on and Baker Mayfield's been awesome, but I like Clemson to cover those four points. I won't say that I think they're going to win, but I think they'll cover the four. What do you think, Robbie? I'll take, uh, Deshaun Watson over Baker Mayfield. That's where I think this game is going to come down to. And both have great defenses. If you look at Oklahoma's defense down the stretch, if you look at Clemson's defense down the stretch, they have really solid defenses. So I think it's going to come down to the quarterback position and who can do more. And quite frankly, Deshaun Watson can do more on the ground. He's more mobile. Baker Mayfield is an outstanding quarterback. And I don't think there's a doubt in my mind that if Deshaun Watson plays the way that he's used to playing and doesn't make mistakes, that they shouldn't be able to win this game. Yeah, both of those quarterbacks are so dynamic, and obviously both of them were like top five finalists for the Heisman. It's going to be really fun to watch them work against each other in the same way that it was fun to watch Watson against Marquise Williams. Uh, Mayfield is creative. And he he does these things that you don't think uh, all of a sudden he's like made a play and you're like, there was no way he could have done that. And Watson's kind of more of a deliberate, but also extremely athletic and amazing player. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if I worded that correctly, but I'm just really looking forward to those two playoff games. I think it's going to be that, the best game. I mean, that's yeah. by far the best game, I think, of the playoff. I'm so excited to see that. It's just a shame that these playoff games have to happen on New Year's Eve when and I know I'll be out at least for dinner and you know into the night a little bit partying. I'm sure there will be TVs, but 
Why do they have to put these playoff games on New Year's Eve? It's so annoying. It's stupid. It's like ESPN. I know they were trying to get the college football playoff to switch it up, and they're just killing the ratings. Like I don't know why they it ended up like this, but we'll be watching some football on New Year's Eve, yeah. and it should be really, really entertaining. I think that's all we got for this week. Uh, we had mentioned in our last podcast that we were hoping to do some in-depth analysis on coaches and schemes regarding uh, Fuente's offense that's coming in. And we're still hoping to do that. Might not happen until after the new year. And in fact, it probably will definitely happen after the new year. Yeah, both episodes, I think, are, that we're going to try and wrap up with. They may be combined. It may be one episode but or maybe two is one's going to be a wrap up on the year. I think we're just going to talk about, you know, what we took in, what we thought, the end of the legacy. We may combine that depending on how it goes with what we want to do, which is a little bit more of an X's and O's preview on the new head coach, Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech. So, we are going to be working hard to get that all ironed out, but it will definitely be after the new year that 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 happens um unless now, Pete and I were thinking about spending our New Year's Eve just kind of recording for everybody that's listening, <laughs> but I don't think that's going to end up happening. Yeah, we'll do the Fuente thing. Uh, the scheme thing, I think that's definitely going to happen after the New Year. And I also would like to do uh, – we'll touch on our recruiting a little bit more because I know a lot of the fans like to do their recruiting. Signing day is coming up in early February. And so I'd like to touch on that, if not before signing day, directly after to recap what all went down and how the class ended up. But remember to follow us. We're at 2DeepVT on Twitter. We're 2DeepVT at gmail.com. Throw us a review on iTunes if you get a chance. That really helps us out. And you can find us on Stitcher and iTunes and also our website, which is uh, 2DeepVT.Libson.com. And we always post the links to our Twitter. So make sure to follow us again on Twitter at 2 deepvt. And until we talk to you after the new year, have a happy and safe holiday and go Hokies.